Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In the new book, Breakpoint, Reckoning with America's Environmental Crises, eminent ecologist Jeremy Jackson and award-winning journalist Steve Chappell examine the looming threats from recent hurricanes and fires, industrial agriculture, river mismanagement, extreme weather events, drought, and rising sea levels that they say are pushing the country toward the breaking point of ecological and economic collapse. Despite these challenges, they provide practical solutions for addressing these multidimensional issues to achieve uh, greater environmental stability, human well-being, and future economic prosperity. Jeremy Jackson is headlining events today at the Stegner Center on the University of Utah campus in Salt Lake City. He joins us for the hour. Um, Professor Jackson, welcome to the program. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Uh, appreciate you uh, you being on with us. Uh, Jeremy Jackson, Professor of Oceanography Emeritus at Scripps Institution of Oceanography, Senior Scientist Emeritus at Smithsonian Institution, studies threats and solutions for human impacts on oceans and ecology and, and evolution of tropical seas. He's the author of 160 scientific publications, 11 books, and is a fellow of American Academy of Arts and, Scientists, uh, and Sciences and has received numerous prizes and awards. Uh, let me give you the events. You want to go and see Professor Jackson uh, today uh, at the Stegner Center on the USU campus, uh, U of U campus in Salt Lake City. Uh, 12.15 this afternoon, a t- talk cuddle breakpoint, reckoning with America's environmental crises, and uh, that is at the S.J. Quinney College of Law Moot Courtroom, Level 6 on the USU campus, 12.15 today. Uh, then uh, another talk uh, this evening, 6.30, uh, titled Humanity's Evolving Relationship to the Ocean, Revaluing the Ocean. That is 6.30, Natural History Museum of Utah, 5th floor, again on the University of Utah campus. Both of those talks free and open to the uh, the public. So a lot going on today, Professor Jackson. We, we appreciate you uh, adding uh, us uh, to the list. Thank you. Uh, well, yeah, you're very welcome. Uh, uh, so t- uh, tell me uh, how this uh, book uh, came about. Very timely, very important book, Breakpoint. How did this come about? Well, you know, I've been an ecologist, and I've been watching changes um, for a long, long time. I've, I've gone from being a, a natural scientist interested in basic science to being increasingly worried about everything I saw going around me. And I reached the point where I, I felt that, that, you know, climate change is now. All of the environmental problems are now. They're not something in the far distant future. And that we're really on the verge of a world um, that we don't want to live in. And, and so that's why I wrote the book. So breakpoint that that's uh, I guess meant to focus our attention, right? Cause alarm. Well, yeah, it, to cause alarm, but I mean to do it in a responsible way, and and to emphasize the point that you know when when we do things, uh, we don't notice, we don't notice, we don't notice, and then all of a sudden something happens, and and um, and that's the sort of thing we're happening now. The greatest mistake, perhaps that the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change made when they were doing their excellent work on future impacts of climate change is that they cast everything in the way it would be in 2100 when, you know, we'll all be dead. Um, and yet um, what we're seeing now with the firestorms in the West, the drought in the West, the incredible increase in the power of hurricanes uh, in the East is today. It's affecting our lives today. And and I felt it was it was really important to to make that point to to change the conversation in a way that would 
allow us to focus on what we're experiencing today instead of some abstract thing in the future. Is part of the problem of where we focus our attention part of that the media? You've talked about uh, how, uh, you know, how the media and how we have focused on uh, Deepwater Horizon, for example. Um, well, I think that's inevitable. The Deepwater Horizon was horrific. I, I did an oil spill study myself in, um, <clears throat> in Panama, in the Southern Caribbean, that actually ended up having a lot of relevance to the Deepwater Horizon. The Deepwater Horizon was an example of a horrible accident that shouldn't have been allowed to happen. It did cause enormous destruction. Um, all of that is true, but but it was just the latest in a litany of of things that had been impinging on the health of the Gulf of Mexico for a hundred years, and and we do tend to get distracted by current events because they are so spectacular and tend to ignore the the deeper and more profound drivers of change, which, uh, in my opinion, are what we really need to be worried about for our future. Yeah, I, I learned a lot from, from the book about the... Uh you know about the delta about uh, New Orleans for example and uh, and and the changes there and the, and the the reasons for that we'll get into that um you say that uh, this this book is in part uh, fulfillment of a teenage uh, fantasy road trip down the mississippi <laughs> <laughs> oh yes well absolutely but i mean the the real basis for that is that it it's very easy for us academics to sit in our ivory towers and pontificate on the dangers of climate change, for example, but I thought it would be really, really interesting to go down the heartland of America from the top to the bottom, which is one of the great engines of American prosperity, of course, in agriculture and energy, and just see what the people who live there think, um, whether they thought everything was wonderful or whether or not they were deeply concerned about certain things. And and what they thought were the reasons for problems if if they thought they were there and and I have to say that it was it was both enlightening and encouraging because people are a lot smarter than they're often considered to be and there there is a deep concern for example in the corn belt about the future of american agriculture in this that region or in the delta where you know people know they're going to have to move because uh, the very land beneath their feet is disappearing. So it, it was. It, it really made it human to spend all that time talking to those people, and and then go back and think about it all in a more um, rigorous scientific context. It, it was a very powerful thing for me. Uh, so tell me about some of the people you met. Maybe um, you, you you talk about John. Uh, is it Weber or Weber? John Weber, Weber. he's an incredibly successful farmer in Iowa. He has uh, way over 2,000 acres of corn and soy. He's um, a very smart businessman, um, and he's had his ups and downs. Um, but he's like the Red Queen and Alice in Wonderland running faster and faster to stay in place. Um, he's um, got millions of dollars of equipment to run his farm, Um Everything he does is dependent on genetically modified um, species of, uh, you know, varieties of corn and soy that, that he couldn't grow successfully unless he dumped the poison roundup on his field. 
And then, you know, weeds are becoming resistant or evolving resistance to this, this poison. And, and he's losing a lot of soil, even though he's a best practices farmer. Um, and so he can see that, um, you know, he, he's making it. He, he's making a living. He's, in fact, very smart and doing better than most. But he can also see the handwriting on the wall, and he worries about it. And so, for example, he talked about whether or not he wants to see his son take over his business. Because, in fact, that was a theme throughout the book, that we, we got to the point of asking, do you want your children to do what you do? And 0% of people wanted their kids to do what they were doing. Mm. The fishermen, the farmers, or whatever, they did not see a rosy future for the lives that they had been living. 0%? So, so, wow. Pardon? Zero uh, percent. That's that's stark. Zero percent. I mean, it was particularly striking in the in the Delta, talking all, to all the different kinds of fishermen and 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 people who they make their living on the land in the Delta, as opposed to the people who extract the, the oil and gas. One thing, but even in the farming community, you know, I mean, uh, there are things called super weeds that are invading fields. There's um, there's the dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico that the farmers know they're responsible for, although they don't all admit it. Weber admitted it. Um, there's the poison drinking water in Lake Erie that shut down Columbus, Ohio's water supply for a couple of days. So they know this stuff is going on. They're, they're smart, and they're basically all very good people, uh, but they're stuck. You know, this is they're invested. And they don't see a way out. Mm. Uh, so you say Weber does, I guess, some of the, the farmers upstream do recognize the damage downstream. They do. They mm. do. But I, I don't know whether you know about it, but there's this thing called tiling. Um, so uh, tiling, the name tiling comes from the days of the Roman Empire when the Romans realized that if you drain the soil by having pipes underground with lots of holes in them, that the plants grew better and were much more productive. Um, so we still call it tiling, but we do it with PVC pipes with holes in it. There are more than half a million miles of so-called tiles just in Iowa, and, you know, three or four million miles of tiles in the Corn Belt of the U.S. And so where does all the water go in that, you know, goes into those holes, into those pipes? That water isn't just water, it's full of excess nutrients from the fertilizer, the poison roundup, all the other herbicides, pesticides that the farmers use. So this water, which is laced with all that very bad stuff, um, you know, drains through the tiles into little brooks and creeks and rivers and then into the Mississippi River and if it's heading south and then goes to the Gulf of Mexico where it makes the dead zone. If it's in the northern drainage, it goes into Lake Erie and, and poisons the drinking water because there are toxic algal blooms. They know that. Um, they get away with it because we don't tax what the economists call externalities in the United States. We don't make the farmers whose nitrogen is flowing into the rivers, we don't make them pay uh, for the damage that those nutrients cause. So the farmers seemingly make money and everything, but they make it at the cost of um, everybody who lives downstream. And 
And this is a kind of inequity that stems from these environmental externalities, which is really one of the greatest challenges we we face in trying to correct the environmental problems we have in this country. Well, we'll talk a little bit later in the program here, and you have uh, you know a section of the book about uh, solutions. But I, I wonder, I want to I want to tackle that right now. Um, you know, w- one possible solution: tax externalities. I think we're a long way from that, uh, given the political climate. What would it take to get there? Do you think? Well, I, I mean, what does it take politically, uh, especially in this day and age? Um, I don't think I want to go there. I, I think if we listened to the evidence, and well, here, let's put it this way. Um, as a consequence of using all that fertilizer and all those problems I just summarized, the drinking water in the Midwest is endangered by the toxins produced by the, the microorganisms that have exploded because of all that nutrient running into Lake Erie and to rivers and ponds and reservoirs. So in Iowa, for example, the water companies are now spending more than $1,000 a person a year to clean that water up so that it's safe to drink. So in other words, and even in Iowa, most people are not farmers. So that, that's a beautiful example of an externality not paid for. It's being paid for the, by the public. If the farmers had to pay for cleaning up that drinking water instead of you and me having to pay for that drinking water, they would almost certainly use a whole lot more, less fertilizer. And that's not even a dreaded word, T-A-X, tax. You know, that's just saying... You cause some damage, it's, it's like paying a speeding fine. You made the water inferior, so you're going to have to pay to clean it up. And um, I think if we couch these issues in terms of their impacts to real people in ways that um, people can understand and they see the costs and benefits, then I think we would be much closer to a rational conversation about all this. But certainly, you know, if you just taxed Roundup and you taxed the nitrogen fertilizer that the farmers use, they're smart businessmen. They use a whole hell of a lot less fertilizer on their fields because they are over-fertilizing their fields. And, and, um, and they'll admit that to you. Oh, a little more won't hurt. Well, it doesn't hurt them, but it hurts the environment and it hurts you and me because we're paying through the taxes we already pay, we're paying to clean that all up. And I guess that's the psychology maybe for a lot of us, right? We kick the problem down the, down the, down the road. Absolutely. And, and, um, and I suppose it's entirely natural. Um, but, you know, it's when you're a kid and you start pushing the envelope and then you get in trouble and then you learn and, and you change your behavior, hopefully. Well, I think if we start to challenge um, these kinds of industrial and agricultural activities by saying, you know, you're doing great, but you really are causing some damage and you need to pay for that damage you're causing, I think we could have a, a conversation that wouldn't be about Republican and Democrat. It would be about um, justice and um, making everybody's lives better. I, I really believe that. 
I'd like to underline a couple of problems you outlined before we go to break here. Uh, well, then we'll change uh, the topic here. But um, um, there, I think some people will have seen uh, some spectacular satellite uh, photos of Lake Erie. And, and the color that's supposed to be, the, the other uh, Great Lakes is, uh, you know, kind of a dark color. Uh, Lake Erie in these photos is lawn green for most of it. What, what's going on there? That is the, that's the problem I alluded to. Um, that is population explosions of a cyanobacterium that um, produces the toxin which <clears throat> troubles the drinking water. Um, one of the um, manifestations of climate change is that increasingly more and more of the rainfall we get is concentrated in very torrential and destructive storms. So when that happens in a place like Iowa or Illinois, there's a huge amount of soil erosion and all that fertilizer and poison and everything that was in the ground gets um, runs off into the rivers and flows into Lake Erie for all the northern flowing rivers. And, and so instead of fertilizing the corn, what we do is we fertilize the cyanobacteria and the cyanobacteria make this poison, and they are bright green. And, and there are ghastly photographs of people scooping up in their hands green slime and dead fish everywhere and all the rest. Um, and um, it, as an ocean ecologist, I used to be very worried about the dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico. I still am. What, one of the things I learned uh, working on this book is that the dead zone, because it is a dead zone in Lake Erie, is every bit as bad as the one in the Gulf of Mexico, and a hell of a lot more threatening to our health because of this uh, poison drinking water situation. Mm. Uh, one more thing before we go And break. it is really bright green. Yeah, really bright green. Bright green, yeah. It, it's, it is spectacular. Um, I want you to maybe uh, say a little bit more about the super weeds. There's a picture of uh, a man standing next to, in the, and the weeds are taller than you know than the man. This is these are weeds. The guy are, is yeah, five or six feet tall. And yeah, the weeds are eight or nine feet tall, and they're only a month old. Uh, oh, I, they grow like <laughs> wow. they grow like they grow like mad. Uh, you know, Rachel Carson taught us in Silent Spring published in 1962, and you may remember that was about DDT, which was being used to control mosquitoes and other insect pests. And the consequence of that, just drowning America in DDT, was that the mosquitoes evolved resistance to the DDT and became more of a problem than they were in the first place. That was in 1962. So now we're drowning fields in this chemical called Roundup, um, forgetting the lesson Rachel Carson taught us, and the consequence is that a number of weed species have evolved resistance to Roundup, and because they're resistant to Roundup, they do better than everybody else in the field, all the other weeds and, and, and also the crops the farmers plant. And so they just take over the field. And, and it's, it's pretty funny if it weren't so serious, you know, because... Um, Rachel Carson told us so more than 50 years ago. Mm. And, and we just blindly keep doing the same stupid thing when it was obvious from the beginning that if you rely heavily on a single kind of poison, 
nature is a powerful thing, and species will evolve that, that love this stuff. And, and, and then you're right back where you started or worse. Um, and that's, and the number of species in superweeds that's spreading through the corn belt is, is like half a dozen really big offenders, and there are a whole lot more on the way. Well, let's take a break. When we come back more with uh, ecologist uh, Jeremy Jackson, <laughs> he, along with journalist uh, Steve Chappell, uh, are out with a new book, Breakpoint, Reckoning with America's Environmental Crises. And um, Professor Jackson will be headlining a couple of events for the Stegner Center on the University of Utah campus. We'll have details on that. Uh, and we'll get on to talking about the disappearing Mississippi River Delta and other uh, environmental problems. And we'll get to solutions as well. Those are found in the book. More following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Cache Valley Cowboy Rendezvous, March 1st through 3rd at Mountain Crest High School in Hiram, including Stephanie Davis, heard on Public Radio, the High Country Cowboys American Idol contestant Kristen Harris, Doris Daly, and Ned Ledoux. Information at cvcowboy.org. Make an appointment with Public Radio's favorite family doc on the next Zorba Pastor on Your Health. It'll be a jam-packed hour on healthy living, including this recipe for... Maple balsamic veggie fries. We always have a great time. So will you on Zorba Pastor on Your Health from PRX. Sunday morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio. What was once science fiction could soon become reality. Scientists bringing back certain extinct species... But does that mean it's worth doing? Even if we bring these back to life, we're not going to be able to control how they evolve in the future. And with the severe inbreeding, I don't think they will have a future. I'm John Donvan. On Intelligence Squared U.S., we ask, should we bring extinct creatures back to life through science? Saturday afternoon at 3 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. We're talking about a new book, Breakpoint, Reckoning with America's Environmental Crises. Eminent ecologist Jeremy Jackson is one of the authors. Award-winning journalist Steve Chappell is the other. And they examine looming threats from recent hurricanes and fires, industrial agriculture, river mismanagement, extreme weather events, drought, and rising sea levels. They say are pushing the country toward the breaking point of ecological and economic collapse. They also focus on uh, solutions. And uh, Jeremy Jackson will be headlining a couple of uh, events for the Stegner Center in on the University of Utah campus today. First of those is 12.15 this afternoon, uh, a lecture titled Breakpoint, Reckoning with America's Environmental Crises. That is at the S.J. Quinney College of Law Moot Courtroom, Level 6. That's free and open to the public. Second event is 6.30 this evening um, on the University of Utah campus. Humanity's evolving relationship to the ocean, revaluing the ocean. That is happening at the Natural uh, History Museum of Utah, fifth floor on the U of U uh, campus. Um, let's see. We have a, a caller. Let's go uh, uh, next to a caller, Veronica in uh, Teasdale. Veronica, glad you called. Good morning. Uh, I am thrilled that you're you're airing this program this morning. I grew up on the shores of Lake Erie in the late 40s and the 50s, and uh, Lake Erie was dead as a doornail. We weren't allowed to go anywhere near it. The banks were ringed with rotting fish. And then, of course, the Cuyahoga River caught fire. <laughs> and uh, I, it's like deja vu all over again. I cannot believe we're repeating this. It's unbelievable. Yeah, so that's... that's just my comment. We've got to wise up and soon 
Okay, thank you for that, Veronica. Appreciate that. So I guess when she was growing up, it was it was it was dead at that point, Professor. Yes, and and we you know we cleaned it up. The Cuyahoga River doesn't burn anymore. It's not perfect, but um, it's an example actually that when you you set your mind to turning these things around, um, you really can do it. Um, and and then you know so you fix something. But then this other problem arises, and, and you're back to square one. Um, the, the caller is absolutely right about the way it used to be. The, the tragedy, uh, in a sense, is that this is a totally new problem, um, but it's the consequence of the, the same kind of sort of nonchalance and not taking the science seriously, because none of this was a surprise. I mean... People in in the scientific community, in my community, we've been we've been warning about these things for a very long time, and people sort of pat us on the back and say, "There, there, that's nice," and then totally ignore us until all of a sudden, um, Toledo, Ohio, Ohio uh, has no fresh water for forty eight hours. Yeah, that- you know because because of the cyanobacteria. That that's it's kind of amusing but distressing at the same time. You pat scientists on the back, say they're there, you know. Um, you you you've sent a presentation. I was watching um, your co-author uh, as, as you were going to publication. He's a journalist, so he he checked in with you and he he, he wanted to make sure is it really this bad? <laughs> yeah, you know where that really happened was not so much in the. Corn Belt, where the um, where the enormity of it all sort of took a while to sink in, because frankly, I was never all that interested in corn, corn and soybeans. Um, I just knew that American agriculture was hugely important, and I wanted to understand it. Um, but we went together to the Mississippi Delta, and um, we were standing on a bridge, which I called the Bridge to Nowhere. It was this huge project that goes to a little tiny island so rich people can go fishing. It's the only reason for the bridge. And, and, and we were looking out on the dying delta. And I just got really angry. And, uh, you, know, you know, it's like that movie Network, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. Yeah. And, and, and so I just vented. And Steve is a practice, serious journalist. He was sort of saying, you know, okay, Jeremy, back off, back off. Is it really true? And and what was interesting was that over the several years that we worked on the book, I think I got through to him about that. But in the opposite direction, he really had a big impact on me in terms of ways of trying to communicate that it really doesn't have to be that way. So I guess we, we met each other somewhere in the middle by the time the book, the, by the time the book was over. But, you know, if you study this stuff, you walk around with this dark cloud over your head because you can see it happening. You know what's going to happen. Everybody ignores it until 10 years later they say, why didn't you warn us? Mm. Yeah, I guess it, it's kind of... Uh... Uh, human psychology, right? It kind of fades, and we, we don't want to focus on it. Push it, push it away. I we suppose. don't want to focus. We're busy. We, mm-hmm. you know, we got to take our kids to school, and we got our jobs and whatever. And it, so it's always at the bottom of the list until it impinges on our kids and the school and our jobs and all the rest of it. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, 
the best example of that is South Florida. I mean, that's going to be no more. But what do you do when your job is there and all the rest? So you just sort of soldier on and you, you hope for the best. Oh, it, I want to get to the Mississippi Delta, but it, let's let's go to to, to Miami. You you I think you grew up in Florida, did you? Yeah, I, I'm from New York originally, but I went from uh, I, I went first, second, and third grade there, and my dad went off to get his PhD, and then we came back, and I went to fifth through twelfth grade there. So my formative growing up years were all in Southern Florida, and um, we lived in the highest point in Dade County which was about 13 feet above sea level. And this is in the 1950s. And even then, when we would have small hurricanes, you'd get upwelling of the water uh, at our, in, in the land in our house because the rock of South Florida is honeycomb limestone. So when you have a storm comes, it sort of pushes the water underground, and it, it would come up there. And, I mean, everybody knew the vulnerability there, but then that was in the 1950s when a lot fewer than a million people lived in the greater Miami area. And now it's it's more like six, and they've spread out into all the places that were zoned for no housing because everybody knew they were dangerous. And mm. then they sort of forgot to um, tell people they couldn't live there. So Key Biscayne and all these places that used to be beautiful beaches you went to, but you wouldn't want to live there. Now, you know, tens or hundreds of thousands of people live on, out in those islands. Mm. And even in the Category 2 and 3 hurricanes that we had way back then, the water would break over those islands. So, I mean, a Category 5 and in, in, in my, a direct hit of a Category 5 in Miami would be an apocalypse. And, and we almost certainly just abandon the city forever. I mean, it, it because all the groundwater would be polluted with salt water and, and the, the damage would... You know, in Miami Beach, every month at full moon high tide, the famous boulevards of Miami Beach are underwater. And Miami Beach, the town, is spending, oh, tens of billions of dollars to buy themselves another 20 years, and then they're going to turn out the light. Because sea level rise is is drowning Miami Beach. I mean, that's not a prediction in the future. That's a bald statement of fact. And anybody listening to this program can just go on the web and look up sea level rise Miami Beach, uh, high tide flooding, and see photographs of it. You know, and I think it's really important. And this gets back to the, the whole point of the book, that these problems aren't you know, sometime in the distant future, they really are now. If you're unlucky enough to live in South Florida or New Orleans or Puerto Rico or Houston, um, you know, because uh, these things are destroying people's lives today in those places, and and they're doing it uh, with a much greater intensity because there's more of us to be affected. So it's Population has increased. People have moved into riskier and riskier areas. And um, because we've intensified the problems with global warming and all of that stuff. 
If you just joined us, we are talking with ecologist Jeremy Jackson. Uh, he's co-author of a new book, Breakpoint, Reckoning with America's Environmental Crises, and he will uh, be on the University of Utah campus uh, today for a couple of events uh, for the Stegner Center at the University of uh, Utah. Uh, you are invited to join this conversation. You can call, as Veronica did, 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495, or email us to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess.com at gmail.com. Professor, you had a very, very stark um, statistic. I hadn't known it was this bad. Uh, three quarters of the land of the Mississippi Delta area has disappeared in the last 50 years. Why is that happening? Oh, it's happening for a whole lot of reasons. It's happening. Uh, it all began when we built dams on the Missouri River and the Dakotas that trapped all the sediment that used to flow down the river and nourish the Delta. Um, Deltas geologically are very active features. They constantly are sinking into the ocean, but they're re-nourished as they sink by new silt and clay and sand that comes down the rivers. When we built the dams, we starved the delta of sediment. So that was that was problem number one. Uh, problem number two was all of that nitrogen from the farms in the Corn Belt starting after World War II. Um, the nutrients slow down, and besides causing that thing called the dead zone, which is a huge area with no oxygen, what they do is they weaken the roots of the marsh plants of the delta. The root systems don't have to grow so big and so strong if the plants are bathed in nourishing nutrients. So that makes the marshes more vulnerable to being blown out by hurricanes because they don't have the dense root mass. And then the third thing we've done is we've sucked a hell of a lot of liquid out of the delta in the form of oil and gas and water. And, you know, nature abhors a vacuum. So if you you remove all this material, then the land sinks to close up the space. So this this triple whammy of no sediment, too much nutrient, and sucking out the liquid has resulted in this acceleration of, of, of the sinking of the delta. And on top of that, sea level is rising. Um, so the net, law, the net sea level rise in the delta is four to five times faster than it is um, say, on the California coast, which isn't sinking because of this, all of these human actions. And to put it in perspective, one football field of Delta is disappearing underwater every hour. Wow. And the Mississippi Delta will not be there in 50, 60, 70 years. It just will not be there. Mm. And, and this is measured, you know, this isn't this isn't models. This isn't crazy scientists with their models talking about something in the future. This is stuff we measure and we observe and, you know, which is published observation. So, um, and all of this information was pretty much suppressed, but of course it's broken out now and there's all sorts of public involvement and outcry and concern. Um, but there's really nothing they can do but move. It's just a matter of helping people to move in as humane and 
socially responsible way as possible. And uh, that, I I don't know whether that seeped into the consciousness of a lot of people. Maybe if you live there, Miami Beach, you're saying, in New Orleans, people just going to have to move? Yes, they are. And then what are we going to do with all those climate refugees? If, and, you know, it's really interesting. So Katrina was a catastrophe. Uh, without getting into politics, the federal government um, did an abysmal job of responding uh, in the short term. But the evacuation of New Orleans was one of the, except for the people who, you know, were trapped and didn't get out, the evacuation was one of the most successful uh, the conducted evacuation um, evacuation history. And um, the really interesting statistic is the vast majority of the people who left never came back. The resurgence of the population in New Orleans is by young people who didn't used to live there, who see job opportunities. But those people voted with their feet. They left because they knew that the history of New Orleans was was did not bode for for a happy future, and um, and so we assimilated those people more or less, and a lot of them are in Houston. But then, guess what happened in Houston? Hurricane Harvey. Um, in I um, I wouldn't want to put words in their mouths, but I went to a series of absolutely fascinating meetings at the. United States Naval War College, um, which is in Rhode Island. And, you know, these are um, very sophisticated, educated naval officers and civilians who, you know, played a major role in the key ro- in the Cold War. And the, my first meeting there was an invitation to attend a very private meeting about environmental risk as the greatest potential threat to the stability of the United States. Now, this was not a bunch of flaming environmentalists. This was United States Navy officers. And it was a very impressive meeting. I mean, those people are interested in data, information, and facts uh, so that they can act on them. And during those meetings, um, we discussed the fact that there are contingency plans for the permanent evacuation of these places we're talking about because life becomes unsustainable in them. Mm. So what are we going to do, um, you know, with 5 million climate refugees in the United States? Yeah, that's... A, if their houses are underwater, right. they don't have any resources left, are we going to let them rot, or are we going to be true Americans and be compassionate and, and, and care for their well-being? Can we afford that? What would be the, the hit on our economy? And wouldn't it make sense um, to do everything in our power to start to relocate now? Mm. Uh, yeah, you would you would think so. Um, you, you said something interesting. The the the, the Navy um, is data driven. You said they they look at the data. You you and you and as a side in this presentation, you said uh, you wish the government as a whole were were more data driven. Yes, absolutely. And you know, one of the things that. Uh, I don't want to put the the Navy on a pedestal. I mean, every organization does smart things and stupid things. But one of the things that's really driven sea level rise and hurricanes home to the Navy is that they are going to have to relocate every single United States naval base, everyone, because they're drowning. 
So the Norfolk Naval Base is going to have to be relocated. And the cost of that is tens of billions of dollars. And because they're data-driven and because, you know, national security depends on having a highly functioning and efficient equivalent of the Norfolk Naval Base, the largest naval base in the world, I think, still, unless the Chinese are catching up with us. Um, so they have to make plans to do this, and they are making plans to do this. And, it, you know, and those, many of those plans are far along. And, and um, so when you and, and this, again, gets back to the road trip idea that, you know, when you are confronted with the stuff you can see and you can experience the change, it's a major first step to achieving some sort of understanding of the new realities that we're facing so that we can act positively on them. I mean, the frustration to me is so much of this is fixable. And in most cases, it's fixable without any cost. It's just we're stuck in our ways of doing things. Let's take another break. When we come back, we'll get into some solutions. And uh, you're, as you just alerted, alluded to there, you say there are there are solutions, if only we'll will uh, you know go to them um, we're talking with um, Jeremy Jackson uh, he is co-author of a new book breakpoint reckoning with America's environmental crises uh, he'll be uh, giving a couple of presentations on the University of Utah campus uh, in Salt Lake City we'll give you details of those and continue this discussion following this break Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Salt Lake City Weekly, a Utah news source since 1984, covering news, politics, music, and more in Salt Lake City and beyond. Available weekly at 1,800 locations across the Wasatch Front or online at cityweekly.net. I'm Stephen Dubner. On the next Freakonomics Radio, we look at a grocery store with an unusually rabid fan base. The first thing I do when I know I'm going somewhere is get on the internet and find where the closest Trader Joe's is. It turns out the secrets to Trader Joe's success are pretty Freakonomical. They don't overwhelm you with choice, which is why you're more willing to examine each novel choice. It's next time on Freakonomics Radio. This morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. UPR's Spring Pledge Drive will be March 21st through the 28th, and we need volunteers. It's your chance to get involved and help us keep bringing you the radio you love. We'll walk you through the process of taking a pledge when you first arrive, so don't worry if it's your first time or if it's been a while since you've been in. We'll also have food and drink options available throughout the drive, and you'll have the opportunity to meet the staff, see our studios, and help make it all happen. You can sign up for available hours through our volunteer form at upr.org. Thanks for listening to Access Utah today. Uh, Tom Williams here. My guest is ecologist Jeremy Jackson. He, along with journalist Steve Chappell, have uh, authored a book, uh, Breakpoint, uh, Reckoning the uh, America's Environmental Crises. And uh, Jeremy Jackson will be headlining a couple of events today for the Stegner Center on the University of Utah campus in Salt Lake City. The first uh, event is 12.15 rather, this afternoon. Uh, that'll be at the S.J. Quinney College of Law Moot Courtroom, Level 6. Freeing up in the public, the title, Breakpoint, Reckoning with America's Environmental Crises. And then this evening, Jeremy Jackson will be talking about humanity's evolving relationship to the ocean, revaluing the ocean. And that is at 6.30 on the U of U campus. 
Natural History Museum of Utah, fifth floor. Both of those events are free and open uh, to the public. Uh, should mention that that first one, 1215, uh, will be streamed and archived at the S.J. Quinney College of Law YouTube channel. That's another option for you. Uh, so, uh, Jeremy Jackson, we haven't even mentioned uh, the, the Southwest, closer to uh, to here in Utah. Uh, drought is projected to increase as we go along. Well, drought is not only projected into, into increase, it has increased. And all one has to do is look at a photograph of Lake Mead or Lake Powell and the bright, shiny white walls because the water has has gone down more than 50% in those reservoirs that are critical for the survival of, uh, of Nevada and, 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 um, and all the states downstream. Um, so um, it is very much a living crisis. And um, not only um, do we, we have more, less rain, but when we do get rain, we're getting it in these incredibly destructive storms, like a year and a half ago in California, uh, without the infrastructure to hold and save the water. So it just goes out, out to the ocean. Um, the, the soil moisture, which is what um, agronomists worry about, the, the, you know, the amount of water in the soil bank, the soil water bank, is unprecedentedly low. Um, low at the kind of level that led to the collapse of the Anasazi civilizations about a thousand years ago, or a little less than that, and um, and going in the wrong direction. So the the projection, and here we go from observation to you know to projection. The the projection is that we will see mega droughts with uh, a greatly increased frequency, and that huge areas of agricultural land will no longer be viable for agriculture, not to mention the water we need um, for our thirsty cities. I don't know a lot about Utah, but my understanding is that Utah is very lucky in terms of its water supply, um, as is much of Colorado, but you go south of here and west of southwest of here, and that is definitely not the case. And there are you know, definitely tensions among the uh, you know the upper Colorado states and the lower Colorado states over over the water, and that'll be uh, I guess increasing as we go along. I want to we do have about five minutes, uh, six minutes left in the conversation. I want to uh, end on a hopeful note. Uh, solutions. You talk about solutions in the book. I wonder if you could uh, take you know two or three of those to highlight. Well, I guess the you know the the mega problem that looms over us all is accelerating climate change, global warming. And and increase in extreme weather, and that is driven by the emission of carbon dioxide. I mean, this is something we've known forever, in spite of what people say. Um, that comes from the burning of fossil fuels. That is the major. There are other inputs, but that is overwhelmingly the major input. And the solution to all that is renewable energy, solar and wind which has been dismissed by the fossil fuel industry as a bunch of tree huggers talking about stuff that's not achievable. But it's so achievable that the state of California has committed to make all of its electricity from wind and solar and other renewable sources by 2045, and they're well on their way to being able to achieve that. Um, It is a fact today that wind and solar power plants 
uh, new ones can be built to produce electricity cheaper than new coal, oil, or natural gas power plants. And the only reason that the fossil fuel power plants are competitive is because they are subsidized. I, I, it always amazes me that most of the general public has no idea that we subsidize the oil and gas industry because the poor industry is so broke, they really need our support. Our tax dollars support them. So um, we're already seeing examples of that in Europe. Um, various countries are getting somewhere between a quarter and a half of all their energy from wind and solar. Um, states like Hawaii are doing amazing things. Um, Republican Texas, Kansas, Oklahoma, right up into Idaho are producing increasing amounts of energy of electricity from wind power, the wind belt of the central and western states. We have the ability to do this. And if we do this, we slow down global warming. And we slow down sea level rise, and we slow down the intensification of storms. That is overwhelmingly the most important thing we have to do. We have the technology to do it. It's getting better and better every day. It's cost-effective. There's a company called Xcel Energy in the Midwest, which is converting to produce more than half of its electricity from wind and solar within the next 10 years because they will make higher profits by doing so. So what is holding us back is an ideology and an industry which is at the, at the cost of all of our well-being. Hmm. Uh, in other areas, uh, the things that we know how to do is we know how to farm and have comparable production without using the Roundup poison, without over-fertilizing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There have been studies going on for 20 or 25 years that demonstrate this equivalent production. So, so what's going on? There's an industry that's, that's doing really well, and they don't want to rock the boat, and so they resist it. So the, the message, I guess, is, is very clear. We, we understand the problems. We have already developed the knowledge and the infrastructure and the technology to get ourselves out of this mess. And the only thing that's holding us back is, is a kind of intransigence. And I will go to so far as to say a corruption, um, in, in that a pervasive corruption of major industries that do not want to lose their profits. Um, but the, Profit to the American people could be just as great. It's just we wouldn't be using these traditional means of, of, of doing things. Well, we'll uh, leave it there uh, near the end of our time. Um, we've been talking with Jeremy Jackson, uh, co-author of Breakpoint, Reckoning with America's Environmental Crises. I want to give one more um, plug for the events. <clears throat> Jeremy Jackson is in Salt Lake City for a couple of events for the Stegner Center. And so the first event is a Stegner Center Green Bag Series lecture that's titled Breakpoint, Reckoning with America's Environmental Crises. That is uh, today, 12.15 in the afternoon, and it's happening uh, at the S.J. Quinney College of Law Moot Courtroom Level 6 on the University of Utah campus. And uh, that will also be streamed and archived on the College of Law YouTube channel uh, for University of Utah. Then the uh, next event is this evening at 6.30, 
uh, Humanity's Evolving Relationship to the Ocean, Revaluing the Ocean. And that's at uh, the Natural History Museum of Utah, fifth floor. And that is also free and open to the public. Uh, Jeremy Jackson, uh, a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much. Well, thank you very much. It was it was really interesting, and, and I much appreciate it. And uh, thanks for listening to Access Utah. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Wasserman Festival presenting pianist Dong Tai Son featuring works of Chopin, Debussy, and Paderewski Saturday, February 23rd at 7.30 p.m. in the Russell Wanless Performance Hall. More information at uscu.edu slash Wasserman. No flowers, no chocolate for us this year. We're celebrating Valentine's Day with some different interpretations of love. A woman who dances every night with her husband's ghost. And two teenagers from rival families who fall truly, madly, deeply. I'm Fred Child. Join me for the next performance today from APM. That's tonight at 9 on Utah Public Radio. On the next Putumayo World Music Hour... Reggae music by Bob Marley and his many family members and former bandmates as well as reggae songs sung by other artists from around the world. Africa, unite, right out of I'm Dan Storper. And I'm Rosalie Howarth. Join us for a Bob Marley family birthday party on the next Putumayo World Music Hour. Join us Friday night at 10 on Utah Public Radio. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM Logan. Also heard online at upr.org.